What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Now look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. I do apologize. It gets so very hot here this time of year. It's fine. Well, you feel like you could just about die. <laughs> but you know what they say about Derry? Hmm. No one who dies here ever really dies. You know what else they say about Derry? What's that? Top-notch sewer grates. Really? Best in the world. I'll take your word for it, Josh. That clip from It Chapter 2, the follow-up to 2017's blockbuster adaptation of the Stephen King bestseller. The sequel is set 27 years later, with the kids from Chapter 1 all grown up and played by Jessica Chastain, James McAvoy, Bill Hader, and others. This week on the show, we've got a review of Chapter 2 and our fall movie preview. All that and more. Really, you've never seen finer sewer grates. Ahead on Film Spotting. Welcome to Film Spotting. This weekend up in Toronto, the city's big deal film festival kicked off, running through the 15th of the month. Telluride's much smaller, but no less prestigious film fest wrapped up this past weekend. And over in Venice last week, a very newsworthy debut, Joaquin Phoenix in Todd Phillips' Joker. And where were we, Adam? Yeah, where were we? In <laughs> none of those places. Thanks for bringing that up. It was hard enough to see all that happening over the weekend. Now I know. You have to remind me, we just missed out. <laughs> Between Venice, Telluride, and Toronto, all the places we weren't, many of the fall's most notable films are getting their first looks. We've got new stuff from Noah Baumbach, the Safdie brothers, Kelly Reichert, Taika Waititi, Ryan Johnson, Steven Soderbergh, Robert Eggers, and many more. Some of these films are sure to come up in our top five questions about the fall movie season. It is our spin on the fall movie preview coming later in the show. But first, our still-processing review of a film unlikely to mark progress in the area of clown representation. For 27 years, I dreamt of you. I craved you. I missed you. We need to finish it. Zooms us from the inside until we don't have a choice anymore. You lied. And I died. Pennywise is back. The losers are grown up. And here, they're maybe confronting something even more personal than the fears we saw them confront in it from 2017. It starts with confronting their past. They've all, except for one of them, escaped Derry and tried as hard as they could to get away from the horrors of their childhoods and their last battle with Pennywise. That all changes when they are called back by Mike to reassemble the gang and try to kill Pennywise once and for all. Josh, I went back and looked at my notes from the last film, and the last thing I wrote was that I wanted to see the next one. Neither of us were overly enthusiastic about the first film, did ultimately give it a positive review. I said I wanted to see the next film. That feeling was a good sign that the movie left me with that. And what I noted specifically was I wanted that sense of closure that I felt like 
chapter two would potentially bring. And I felt like there was more to the story. There is definitely a lot more to the story. Two hours and 50 minutes worth is more in this case better. Uh, yeah, I, I, that's funny you put it that way. I don't think they get to the more. And you also used a phrase there, more personal. I don't know that it is at all. And I think that might be the heart of the issue with this film for me because the opportunity it had, which I think you're alluding to, what you were probably hoping for, yes. is this idea of adults confronting something they've survived, trauma, basically thinking about trauma. And uh, I would say the first film considered that not intensely, not very thoroughly, but touched on it in a way that this movie doesn't really do at all. I ended my review, the one I wrote about the original one, saying it was a rotating, and mind you, this was a mildly positive review, a rotating ride of random horrors that threatens to never end. Well, I was a naive young man <laughs> yes. in 2017 yes. because I cannot remember wanting a film to end as much as I wanted this one to end while I was sitting. Yeah, it's been a while since I felt similarly. And I don't think it's just a matter of this, you know, not being my thing. I generally like horror. I did not read the source material, so I don't have that sort of attachment to it. Maybe that will carry you through this. But the very structure of this film, where it seems to drag us along with so many chores and tasks that the characters have to do. First, it spends its time getting them back together for yes. reasons that are vague. Then those reasons shift, and Mike gives them each individual tasks that they have to go around dairy and collect items. And this becomes something of a chore. Then, by the time we get to the climax and we keep going down— we go to that haunted house. We go down in the basement. Then we go down into the well yeah. where the climax of the first film was. Then there's another tunnel, a new tunnel, mm -hmm. and we just keep going down. That for me was a perfect metaphor um, for the way this film – it's basically jump scare the movie. And it keeps sending us through different sequences that will allow for a new jump scare – we can talk about if some of those are effective. Yes. What we thought of the scares themselves. Obviously, that's a big part of this. But it was unrelenting to me and interminable. And I certainly don't need any more. I don't think we're going to get any more. No. I mean, it's a very conclusive ending this time. Yes. And I'm. that's a relief to me. <laughs> the whole structure here really is problematic because, as you said, it feels like this kind of endless cycle where first we have to meet each adult individually. Yes. And they each have to get the back to The same phone call. Right. The same phone call. They don't find a way to really elide that at all. And I understand that we're probably supposed to be gleaning details, and we do, from their lives, try to understand something about who they are. And there are little clues here and there, maybe even a little bit overdone. But we get a sense of Richie, for example, played by Bill Hader. We get a sense just from his bombing on stage and the fact that he forgets a line and he says later something about how he doesn't even write his own material, yeah. which is kind of an odd throwaway thing. But I think it suggests what his larger problem is. We'll get to the word I want to use in a moment. His larger problem, which is being able to express who he truly is. He can't express himself. And of course, it's not surprising, perhaps, that we see Jessica Chastain now her character as a grown-up has fallen into a similar troubling, abusive relationship with her husband as she had with her father. And Eddie, 
that character has now found an overbearing wife to be just like his overbearing mom. So, yes, we're supposed to take in information there, but it definitely feels very cumbersome. And then once we do that, you're right, it separates them so that we have to follow them. The whole appeal of the movie the first time and the appeal here, honestly, is when they're a group, when they're together. They're all better And we're better off when they're together, when they're a group. Following each of them as they gather that artifact just is incredibly drawn out and clunky. And to clarify where I was going with the idea of it being perhaps more personal is the idea that in the first one, they were confronting fear itself. Pennywise, I think, represented Their individual fears. Their individual fears. And I think I used the term in our review last time, their lives are basically presented as war zones. So it's not like there isn't a ton of trauma or opportunities for them to be traumatized presented in that film. But this movie suggests something potentially really interesting that then never fully pans out for me, which is that here what each one of them has to confront is not just trauma, but shame. They are all hiding something. They all have something that makes them feel guilty, something they are not willing to verbalize out loud. And in some cases... We see characters fully confront that shame and actually express themselves. Other characters, the movie doesn't really follow through on at all. And I think this ties back to the other big issue with this film. I want to hear from you about any scares that did work for you. While we're going through these set pieces, which is what it is, just a series of set pieces with each adult slash kid confronting their shame and confronting it via Pennywise, we realize early on that there's no real threat here. Pennywise does not actually threaten them in any of these scenes. What should be a threat is that these characters may have to reveal themselves, that their secret might get out. That should really be, I think, what we're invested in over the course of these scenes, but the movie doesn't do anything interesting with that either. Yeah, that's that's way too psychological for what this movie is interested in, which is mostly those those scares, which I do want to get to, but your use of the word shame, let's stick with that for a minute because, and find something that I think the movie does do well, there are two instances where this becomes an interesting film. And one, I would say, yes, is tied to shame, and that's Bab, the Jessica Chastain character. And the other is um, guilt, when they're dealing with guilt, and that yeah, is I think those are connected, Bill, yeah. um, James McAvoy's character, with what happened to his brother in the first film. And in the case of Bab, it's her relationship with her father and, and the reputation that she has around town. So those are the set pieces which are tied to a psychological reality where there's another layer going on Mm -hmm. than just the grotesquerie or the surprise of the scare. And I think those would be good models for this film overall, but are not carried through. Some of the sequences don't even worry about that at all. Some of them try to tie that in in a very clumsy way. I Mm -hmm. I think a very basic problem is that there's just too many characters in this story for, for sure. a film. Yes. Um, you mentioned it in the having to like check off the box of yeah. each one. They can't, even in a three-hour movie, they can't make them all interesting or as fully realized as they should be. So that's just a basic problem. It's a basic challenge. But there are those instances in those two characters of Bill and Bev where guilt and shame are invoked. And that makes everything feel more palpable to us because Mm -hmm. those are emotions we can identify with as well. As lurid and grotesque and insane as the imagery gets, if it's rooted to something that we can access that we've experienced, 
it becomes more frightening yes. and disturbing. And so much of this film is not frightening, not disturbing. It's just, again, like a, it, it's like a haunted house mechanical ride that we're going through. Here's another emotion that I'm wondering if it ever evoked for you, but and, and maybe you haven't had this, but if you grew up, I lived in the same house from like 5 to 18. And um, parents moved on, so it's been years since anyone has lived there, and it's still around Chicago. So every great once in a while, it's not too far for me to drive by. Yeah. If anyone's ever done that, driven by a childhood home, mm-hmm. the the mix of emotions that you have, both positive and negative, is a very distinct experience. And this movie, there's one scene where Bill goes back his childhood house and you wonder, are they going to tap into that? Because this is, should be the heart of the film, is sort of a, a curdled nostalgia, a revisiting of a childhood that only held bad memories. They talk a lot about bad memories. But does it ever evoke – did it ever evoke for you anything like that sort of – bittersweet, conflicted emotion of revisiting something from your childhood. I didn't get it for an instance in this film. Well, I don't know if it was truly conflicted, but the only moment that really resonated with me along those lines, and this speaks to, again, how much fun it is when the group is back together, especially when it's the group of kids, is the scene where they go to the fort or the the hideout that they have. And we see them really finally start to connect with their memories. And over the course of that scene and that nostalgic haze that they were in, that was maybe the only scene in the entire film I really felt a connection, truly, to these characters. And it's funny because I did go back and look at my notes from the first film, and I touched on that there is a stand-by-me element to the end of that film. Well, you absolutely feel it here, and you feel it in that moment. You think about the end of Stand By Me and that question that Richard Dreyfuss as a narrator poses, which is, I never had any friends later on like the ones I had when I was 12, Jesus does anyone. That that writer, Stephen King, right, is here, is omnipresent throughout, or at least throughout that sequence in It Chapter 2. And there's even a little bit of a homage, perhaps, at the end of this film, if you think about the writer character and how this movie concludes, going back to Stand By Me. But that was really it. That was the only sequence that I really felt that connection. And that is a good one. I'm glad you brought that up. Uh, Tellingly, as you suggested, it is with the young cast, which is far stronger than the grown-up cast. It's not not that individually they're not really good, but collectively— the materi- They're not great. The material isn't there, and the, the scenes are, for the most part, not set up, again, for anything other than to kind of shock us. And and even the ones – I mean, they do try to ram in a love triangle here, and none of those sequences work at all. I, I just – as for the adults, I'm, yes. I'm saying. I think that that is another area that's, despite the long running time, would have needed much more attention to be effective. Well, in, in a way, the love triangle is even abandoned about halfway Th- through, just right? It, it yeah, doesn't, it doesn't really make any sense. And you used a key word, which is grotesqueries. There really is, the way I wrote it, was there is an emphasis on the gross here that I don't recall with the first film. And that doesn't scare me particularly. Of course, yeah, maybe it grosses me out a little bit, but doesn't really unnerve me. And the best scares from the first film definitely were when the movie exhibited a lot of patience and it was very subtle and it's psychological horror and it was creepy, honestly creepy more than ever being gross. And here it seems like it just keeps adding on each time we get one of these set pieces. We see one of these creatures and we see a lot of creatures, lots of creatures, right? Who take on insect form or 
half zombie or whatever they are. There's just this idea that they're trying to kind of repulse us, which, again, I just don't find particularly disturbing. And I think it's interesting to note here, too, when you talk about that patience and when you talk about what truly is unnerving and disturbing, it's the opening of this film. And it's a sequence in which we watch not supernatural horror, but natural horror, which also bugs me, which bugs me in a way, too. Right. Because it feels gratuitous in a film that otherwise isn't really interested in exploring the evils that men do to each other. That's exactly it. That, so so let's, it opens with two characters we haven't met before at a carnival in Derry, and it's basically experienced an extreme instance of gay bashing. I mean, this gets horribly yeah. brutal. It goes on forever, and it's of a piece with the first time we see Bev as an adult, the Jessica Chastain character, and meet her husband. Yes. And suddenly, yes. it's like a switcheroo. At first, we think, oh, he's he's a kind and caring guy, and then like a switch flips. Yeah. And all of a Kinda sudden- Kind of like Pennywise with that smile. Yeah. It's of another brutal, mm-hmm. lengthy sequence of real violence, and my issue with both of those- which I think you can tie to the supernatural violence as well, is it's it's handling those things in a very trifling manner. It's almost like it doesn't know the fire it's playing with. Yeah. It doesn't seem to know that um, the, the experience these two men are having is a real-world thing. Like, it's something that actually happens and carries with it all sorts of actual trauma. It's more that it's just a conceit that the movie can use to kind of unsettle us. Yeah. And that's the same thing with the the domestic abuse situation. That's another maybe that's why it's more bothersome there than later when there's violence in the film that's fantastical. Yes. Because um it's easier to disassociate that, but the movie doesn't seem to understand how important that violence is at the beginning. Mm-hmm. I completely agree. And I suppose we could tie the sequence with Chastain's character back to this larger issue of shame. It's certainly shame that she feels now yeah. as an adult as well. I don't know it's that I can really... Presented. Yeah, no, totally. I don't know that I can make the connection or in any way justify everything you described with that opening scene. You could potentially argue that it's tying back to this notion of shame in the sense that we see two characters who certain people in the town, obviously, like their attackers, feel as if they should be exhibiting more shame, but they absolutely are shameless right. about who they are. So I get in a They're way how it ties in as well. They're outsiders. I get, well, one of them has been there his whole life. One of them. I mean, outsider. like societal, yeah. societal. dairy society. They no, would that be makes, considered outsiders. that makes total sense. So but those are thematic threads. Those it are thematic threads. Yeah. yeah. It doesn't really fit with the type of horror this movie otherwise is going for. And it sounds like we didn't find very effective. I think in general, when you talk about the clunkiness of the structure and the direction in general, and there are truly some clunky touches. Like at one point, I don't know if this qualifies as a needle drop. Yeah, it probably does. We get a popular song playing on the soundtrack. I was so baffled during another moment of grotesquery that really isn't funny. It isn't anything. It's just, there's an odd balance of humor and horror throughout where I know, I know those are two elements that are often mixed to good effect. Often the humor is a release, but it, It's off here. The balance is off. And it's also, I feel, a little cumbersome in the way it overplays the cutting back and forth between the adults and the kids. It's a nice trick. They did an amazing job casting these people. They really did. And finding adults who look that close to those kids and 
being able to play off some of their similarities and some of their same behavior. But the movie then wants to remind us of it over and over again. And the other part, which I don't even know if it's worth bringing up because the movie clearly does not care a bit about it. And then it's baffling why it spends as much time as it does getting into the mythology of Pennywise. Can you even call it mythology when there's really there's well, really no substance there whatsoever? It's it's a bunch of artifacts and sayings and drug induced well, visions. And a lot that, of like verging on offensive Native American mysticism <laughs> right, that comes right. out of nowhere. Yeah. Um and and yeah. It doesn't lead to anything. It doesn't. I mean, not to spoil. The gathering of the artifacts doesn't lead to anything. I think that was part of my frustration, too, is you put me through all of that. It's, <laughs> it's for nothing. All right. Let me let me throw in a few positive things here as we're okay. wrapping up, though. Your mention of patience made me think of this. One of the very effective sequences is when a little girl goes under the bleachers at a baseball game and encounters Pennywise. Yes. It's drawn out. Yeah. There's, he preys on her shame, too. Yeah. Exactly. There are psychological elements at play. Um, And there's also effective imagery. I will say that the balloon, the red balloon, is still a very potent image throughout this film. And Muschietti showed a flair in the first film for the single image that could grab you. There was a lot of gross stuff in there, but there was, I I think of, and here's a combination of gross but unsettling, just hair clogged in a drain in Bev's home. Mm -hmm. That just kind of captured so much of what her life was like. And here things are just amplified to such a high degree that we don't get that. I was surprised there wasn't more arresting imagery in it. And I will say, I think even some of the creatures you mentioned, it gets kind of hokey. I mean, it It started early on the uh, fortune cookie creatures. Um, those were yes. not very convincing. <laughs> no, they weren't. There's a, there's a like giant old naked lady troll yeah. that kind of bursts out of nowhere yeah. that wasn't too impressive either. And then Spiderhead. <laughs> I know. I, no. I don't think Spiderhead No, worked. there's there's almost an old John Carpenter kind of 80s of horror too. feel yeah, to it, which yeah. I love in those films. But in this film, it doesn't feel right at all. It Chapter 2 is currently playing in wide release. If you see it and agree or disagree with our thoughts, we would love to hear from you. Feedback at filmspotting.net. Our fall movie preview package is next. We've got results of the film spotting poll, asking you which Toronto International Film Festival title you're most excited about, and then our top five questions about the upcoming movie season. Stay with us. with a hood and a mask. Okay, I think we'll find something for you. I suppose you'd like the password. If you'd like, sir. Fidelio. Thank you. 
Have fun at that party, Tom Cruise. You're listening to Film Spotting. Cruise there in the trailer for Stanley Kubrick's Eyes Wide Shut. It's the next film in our 9 from 99 series celebrating the 20th anniversary of that great movie year. And Josh, with Eyes Wide Shut, it's time to kick this series up a notch. Yeah, this one's a little intimidating more than some of the other stuff. You think so? I think so. Yeah, okay. I guess I feel confident because I loved it so much when it first came out. Yeah. So I'm going in with a lot of affection. Um, I feel like I wrestled with it at the time, but who knows? Maybe I'll find that I missed things or maybe even overestimated things. Yeah, and I would say maybe this one put the kiddos away for. Oh, yes. That's that's (laughs) clearly – unlike the Scarlet Empress in our Dietrich – Von Sternberg Marathon, where I didn't anticipate Kubrick the might have gotten torture. some inspiration <laughs> yes, for I that party so. sequence. This one I know, not safe for the whole family. Yeah. We've had a lot of fun this year revisiting films like The Matrix, Fight Club, The Blair Witch Project, The Sixth Sense, and just last week had a great conversation about being John Malkovich. And all these films so far are pretty much as good as we remember them, if not better, we will see if that is true for Kubrick as well. Next week on the show, that 9 from 99 review of Eyes Wide Shut. Plus, we'll revisit our top five Kubrick scenes from back in September 2013. You'll hear the great Michael Phillips from the Chicago Tribune as he was part of that top five. If you have thoughts on Kubrick or Eyes Wide Shut, go ahead and send them our way. Feedback at filmspotting.net. Or if you leave us a voicemail, we might just play it on the show. 312 312- Two six four zero seven four four. Of course, you could also send us an MP3 file, feedback at filmspotting.net. Again, that email or find us on Twitter at filmspotting and at Larson on film. Earlier this week, Josh, on our great sister show podcast, The Next Picture Show, they posted part two of their conversation about the new documentary on Netflix, American Factory, pairing that with Barbara Koppel's great documentary from the 70s, Harlan County, USA. Listen to that on Labor Day while doing some labor around the house myself, some projects that had gotten away from me over the summer, uh-huh. Adam. It's really good. I know you weren't quite as high as they were on American Factory, um, but I, I liked especially Keith Phipps and Genevieve Kosky both had some personal ties. Keith being from, grew up in Dayton, Ohio, where okay. uh, the doc is set. So yeah, it's a, it's a good episode. I encourage listeners to check it out. After your hard labor over the weekend at home, are you starting a union? Yes. It's comprised of me and the dog. I think that will be very successful. She just stares at people and they give in. So if you want to hear those episodes, new episodes of The Next Picture Show post every Tuesday at midnight wherever you get your podcasts or there's more info available at nextpictureshow.net. Next up for those guys is the violent new horror comedy Ready or Not. And they're comparing, contrasting with 1985's Clue. I love it. Both movies take place in a mansion where murder most foul is the game. If you are a fan of Clue, as I am, maybe you just need to do your homework and see ready or not and get ready for those episodes. Now, Josh, you were not in Toronto or Telluride or Venice or anywhere else watching movies, but you are going to be talking about movies, movies as prayers to be more specific. At a lot of upcoming speaker dates, it's really amazing that you're making time for the show. Thank you. Well, yes, I'm not skipping any episodes. I did want to assure you of that. I'm still going to fit in recording, so don't worry. But it is time with the fall around the corner to get back on the road with the book. Movies are prayers. Thank is you, Is fall God season? Or? <laughs> All seasons are God season, Adam. Come of on. course. Come on. <laughs> but yes, I will be, I'll even be venturing, no, not to Venice, but I will get outside of the Midwest. I start there, though. 
on September 12th, I'll be at Compass College, which is in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Then on September 26th, I'm going to be part of a conference called the Apprentice Gathering. Friends University puts that on, and that's in Wichita, Kansas. And then in October, I'll be heading to Princeton Theological Seminary. So I'll get out to New Jersey. That's October 3. Yeah, I'm going to do a variety of presentations. Some are just book talks. Some are Q&As. Some are workshops uh, where I'll break down, say, Toy Story, the first Toy Story as a prayer of confession. So a variety of presentations. I guess I'm as I'm saying this, I'm realizing on my website, I don't really have like a place to post upcoming events. Maybe we could throw it on the Film spotting events page, just these dates I and suppose. links to where you know. Since since I'm not skipping any shows, you can yeah. do me that favor, okay. and so you'll be able to find more details about each of these dates at filmspotting.net/slash/events. Absolutely, and if listeners are, let's be clear: in the Grand Rapids, Michigan area, or the Wichita, Kansas area in September, or the first week of October, out in Princeton, New Jersey, they can come participate, or at Absolutely. least come observe one Josh. Larson doing his thing live. Please do come. And there's always participation. So, yeah, I'd love to see you there. Speaking of participation, sometimes we like to interject ourselves into the movies, not just review them. And we do that via Massacre Theater, the part of the show where we perform a scene from a movie and you get a chance at winning a T-shirt. In case you missed it, here's a bit of last week's Massacre. You're the guy at the gym when I ask about that moronic She's woman. She's not a moron. You're in league with that moronic woman. You're part of a league of morons. There does seem to be some consensus, Josh, that league is the giveaway. League. You nailed that one. League. There you go again. If you know what actor Josh is impersonating with that line delivery, because it's Channeling. really the only line Channeling. he got right. It's the one line he appropriately channeled that actor. Then maybe that will cue you into which scene we did for last week's massacre. And if you do know the title, please send us that title along with your name and location to feedback at filmspotting.net. Your deadline is this coming Monday, the 8th of September. We will select the winner randomly from all the correct entries and announce it on next week's show. Tell me, what's a timber man want with being a wiki? Just looking to earn a living. It's like any man. Starting new. On the run. Josh, what's a wiki? A wiki. A wiki is um, not a wookie. No. no. We know that. Um, not an online encyclopedia. Uh, not no, in this context. No. Uh, I think it's probably, if it's related to the lighthouse, the person who lights the wick uh, in, in an old-timey an old-timey lighthouse, you know, where it's like a giant <laughs> – did they use like giant candles? I, I'm going to learn so much from the lighthouse. Can't wait. Can't wait for these types of scintillating conversations and more surrounding this film. You heard Willem Dafoe and Robert Pattinson in the trailer for Robert Eggers' The Lighthouse. His debut film was 2015's The Witch, or The Vavitch, if you prefer. <laughs> the Lighthouse, one of the highly anticipated films playing this month's Toronto International Film Festival before getting a release later this year. What's a Timberman? We, I don't know what a Timberman is <laughs> no, either. No, I don't either. Time for some poll results, Josh. Maybe we'll have some answers here. A couple weeks back, we asked you, what film playing this year's TIFF are you most looking forward to? And we gave you these options, and there are a lot of them. So I thought, Josh, we'd go through them this way. I'll read the title. You can give some supporting information. First up, 
A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood. Which would be the Mr. Rogers biopic. It stars Tom Hanks and is directed by Marielle Heller. Yeah, great director who made a film spotting Golden Brick nominee, Diary of a Teenage Girl, and also last year's what, Josh? Can You Ever Forgive Me? Or you could go with Jojo Rabbit. Jojo Rabbit would be Taika Waititi's, quote, anti-hate satire, which here's the good part. Waititi stars as Hitler. Yes, he does. Next up, Joker. We all know about Joker. It stars Joaquin Phoenix. That's really all we need to say at this point. Or you could go Knives Out. Ryan Johnson's whodunit follow-up to The Last Jedi. Maybe the next picture show would have wanted to hold that clue pairing for Knives Out. I don't know. Yeah. I saw it from the trailer. Good point. A lot of clue vibes. We'll really, see. Really a missed opportunity there by the next picture show. Or The Laundromat. That has Meryl Streep as a widow who gets caught up in a money laundering scheme and... It's directed by the retired Steven Soderbergh. The aforementioned The Lighthouse is one of your options, as well as Noah Baumbach's Marriage Story. Marriage Story stars Adam Driver and Scarlett Johansson as a couple whose marriage is falling apart. Simple enough. What about Parasite, Josh? This is Bong Joon-ho's Palm Door winning film about class warfare in South Korea. Or if that doesn't excite you, there's Portrait of a Lady on Fire. Celine Sciamma made this one. She is the director behind Girlhood and Tomboy. She also won the Screenwriting Prize at Cannes. For this film, it's about a painter living on the isolated island of Brittany. What about Uncut Gems? Uncut Gems starring Adam Sandler, but wait, directed by the Safdie brothers who made Good Time. And if none of those work for you, you could go with Other and write in your own candidate. Josh, how did the results come out? Other is in last place with less then 1% of the vote, then a beautiful day in the neighborhood with only 1% of the vote. Kind of a surprise, Mm -hmm. I think, right? The Laundromat received 2%, Portrait of a Lady on Fire, 3%, Noah Baumbach's Marriage Story, another surprise to me, with only 5% of the vote here, Uncut Gems, 6%, Joker got 12%, Knives Out got 13%. Up at the top, 14% of the vote went to Jojo Rabbit. 19% 19% went to Parasite, and 22% went to The Lighthouse. How about that? The Lighthouse winning this poll. The few other votes went to Terrence Malick's A Hidden Life. That makes sense. Hirokazu Koreda's The Truth. That stars Juliette Binoche and Ethan Hawke. Ken Loach's Sorry We Missed You was also in there, and Edward Norton's Motherless Brooklyn. We heard from Jonathan from Denver, who said lots of good choices here, but most of the ones I'm tempted by are from fairly well-known directors. Baumbach, Johnson, Soderbergh. Robert Eggers blew me away with the witch, but can he do it again? That's the question I'm most looking forward to having answered. Here's Aaron Crabtree. I need the lighthouse downloaded into my brain like Neo learning Kung Fu in the Matrix ASAP. Man, those are our listeners. A black and white film that looks like it really could be about anything. Almost. Aaron wants it downloaded right into his veins. (laughs) Dylan Dom says, I have a feeling that the lighthouse will be the best of the bunch, but the one I'm most excited for is a beautiful day in the neighborhood. Dylan was the single voter. I guess we needed Fred Rogers when we had him, but I think we may need him now even more. Hopefully Hanks can deliver that for us. We also heard from Rory Dunn. Many of these have already been seen at festivals earlier in the year. So the one film that is at this point a complete unknown is Uncut Gems. While many people appreciated good times, I was less impressed by it, but I'm still intrigued by what the Safties will do next. Add in Adam Sandler in one of his rare but almost always great serious roles, and you have enough for my vote. Yeah, I'm really intrigued by Sandler and the Safties. That movie not eligible for our fall movie preview coming up. We'll get into some of the criteria 
surrounding that top five here in a moment. The new poll question over at filmspotting.net has us looking ahead to James Gray's Ad Astra. It stars Brad Pitt on a rescue mission that takes him across the solar system. We did plan to review this film in anticipation of its September 20th release. It's looking like based on screening availability, we may not get to it until a week later. So that review would probably post Friday, September 27th, gives everyone out there a chance to see the movie before listening to our review. In the meantime, an Ad Astra-inspired poll question for you. We've had a couple of space movies this year from unlikely directors, James Gray being one of them. He's the director of historical dramas like The Lost City of Z and The Immigrant. Before that, he made contemporary urban crime dramas like The Yards and We Own the Night. Of course, you can't forget, we'll never forget what we saw in Claire Denis' space movie, High Life with Robert Pattinson. Yeah. Have we recovered yet from the... Can we? Just, we should probably just call it the love. Box. The love box it didn't seem very loving. No, no, it did not. I think we will just move on from there to the question: Which acclaimed director's unlikely space movie would you most want to see? I think this one is truly an inspired poll question from film spotting producer Sam Van Halgren. Not a terribly flawed one, though. We may see when we get some of the feedback whether or not there are holes we can poke in it. But I really like his criteria, and I like the choices, Josh. Yeah, I do too. I'm sure there will be some complaints, but this was a lot of fun to think about. Here are the choices Sam gave us. Sofia Coppola, Wong Kar Wai, Barry Jenkins, Spike Lee, UK's Mike Lee, Lynn Ramsey, or Kelly Riker. We're not going to do another option this time around. And Sam intentionally left out some names that you might think we'd otherwise put in here. So Tarantino isn't there. The Coens aren't there. No Scorsese. Paul Thomas Anderson, Wes Anderson, both of them. We're both screwed. Your guy and my guy. I don't know what we're going to do. They just seemed, I think, to Sam, like the usual suspects, I guess we could say. And he also said no to directors who have already worked in sci-fi or fantasy. So Fincher, Del Toro, Alfonso Cuaron, Inyaritu Bigelow, Bong Joon-ho. Those names could have been considered, but since they've been close to a space movie, maybe not on the list of options. Okay. Well, I think, although I would like to see a space movie by all those people, I mean, the most unlikely would definitely be Mike Mike Lee. Lee. Right? I mean, if you've ever seen a Mike Lee film... There's just no way he's going to step outside his traditional milieu. And he has made a period piece, yes. of course, at least one, but that's not his normal I feel like milieu. That would be, if going Mike to space Lee was going to be crazy. punished. Yes. He would be assigned to make a space. Absolutely. Movie. So, almost on those grounds alone, I really want, want to, to see. I want to punish. I want to send him to space jail <laughs> in Claire Denis' movie, but force him to make a movie. Yeah, don't put him in the love box, though. Leave him out of the love box. Okay, I'll do that. He seems like a nice enough gentleman. But if I was really choosing just based on kind of filmmaker that currently tickles my fancy the most, Josh, Barry Jenkins. Mm. Why not? I love his eye when it comes to any material, so let's put it in space. Am I wrong to think that it might feel a little bit like the kinder, gentler parts of Denise High Life. I knew where you were going right away. Absolutely. It's kind of a redundant choice in some ways. Maybe we saw Barry Jenkins' space movie. It was High Life already. He's such a big fan. I think I'm going to go, probably no surprise here, with Sofia Coppola. If I can't get If you can't go Wes Anderson, you're going Sofia Coppola. But also if I can't get her Little Mermaid movie that, you know, the stars cruelly pulled away from me. That never existed. You made it up. Totally existed. At least I can have my Sofia Coppola space movie. At least I can vote for it. 
In early voting, Wong Kar Wai is out ahead of the pack with Barry Jenkins not far behind. And you could wonder, have we already seen Wong Kar Wai's space movie? In a way, 2046 yeah. from 2005 is a sort of sci-fi sequel to In the Mood for Love. Now, I do love that when Sam wrote this in our notes, I had to correct it because he accidentally typed In the Moon for Love, <laughs> which really seems appropriate for a Wong Kar Wai sci-fi movie. I'd like yeah. to see the sequel to In the Mood for I Love. Would- in the moon for love. I would only go if it had that title. <laughs> we would love to hear your vote. You can go ahead and make up the title, too. How about that? You don't oh, have to yeah. write the script. Please do. But give us the title. Vote now at filmspotting.net. If you leave a comment, and we hope you do, please let us know where you're listening from. Mike Lee's Love Box. What can you tell us about the Lima Project? Its objective was to search for advanced extraterrestrial life. The ship disappeared approximately 16 years into the mission. And the commander was? He was my father, sir. This might come as quite a shock to you. There's a bit of the trailer for Ad Astra, one of the first big anticipated movies of the fall movie season. The obvious question about that one is 2019, the year Brad Pitt saves both. And Sam here put redacted as if we're not going to spoil the end of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood at this point. Don't spoil it. Okay. No. It seems a little silly, but is he going to save both? redacted yes and saved the solar system we can only hope we can only hope and that was maybe the obvious question we'll see how obvious our questions are as we get into our fall movie preview i alluded to this earlier there will be no questions about adam sandler and how good he may or may not be in the safety brothers uncut gems that movie does come out sometime in december usually well when i'm not breaking the rules inadvertently We try to keep these fall movie previews to Thanksgiving. Basically from now, September up to Thanksgiving. One new wrinkle, I suppose, for me this time, Josh, because we usually do get into our questions. And then at some point we do reveal what our pure top five would be if we were just listing titles in terms of excitement, the movies we want to see the most. And one thing I decided to do this time was really focus on movies that I can't wait to see, even for my questions. I've got a bunch of questions, and some of them you're going to hear in my honorable mentions, but I feel like sometimes I know I'm guilty of coming up with clever, or at least in my case, semi-clever questions that relate to movies. I know deep down we're probably not going to review on the show, and I may not even make it to with all the movies we're trying to cram in. So I kept it this time to questions about movies I know for a fact I'm going to see. Okay. I'm looking at my list now and not sure I can say the same, but eh, I might get to all these. Okay. All right. What's your number five? I think we've been doing this format long enough, the questions format, that listeners seem to be anticipating it because we got a lot of good suggestions on social media this time around. So Mm -hmm. I stole a couple um, for my questions. And I'm going to start with a listener question here. It comes from Aaron Newworth, who shared this on my Larson on Film Facebook page. Can Soderbergh stay off his phone long enough to convince us he's also good with traditional movie making? (laughs) This is such a good question because you are not as much of a Soderbergh admirer as I am, nor are you as much of a defender of his cell phone use, his smartphone use as I am. Yes, and Aaron and I are on exactly the same page about how it was used in High Flying Bird. I did see the aesthetic quality it brought to Unsane. I thought there was, you know, a good reason for doing it there. But yeah, as Aaron suggests, High Flying Bird, which did come out earlier this year, I just, I didn't think the iPhone added to the aesthetic there. The laundromat, though, this one, he's still using a digital camera. It's not going to be 
a mobile phone, however. And it's, as we mentioned earlier, a widow investigating an insurance fraud. She chases leads to a pair of Panama City law partners who are exploiting the world's financial system. Meryl Streep is the widow. Gary Oldman and Antonio Banderas play the scammers, the two partners, which I think is kind of an amusing idea. And I have seen the trailer for this and can confirm Oldman is in big accent so, mode. So, yeah, is this the one everyone's talking about, the Oldman performance this year that's just classic Oldman over the top? I'm assuming that's what they're referring to if yeah, you've seen I think the trailer. So. Yes, it's really big. All I did was try and send money. It's a scam that goes from Houston to the West Indies to some bank who knows where. They're getting away with murder. Which is bad. Bad? Yeah, bad is such a big word for being such a small word. I'm on a That looks like it could be fun. Also in the cast, Sharon Stone, which is intriguing. David Schwimmer. Um, so this hmm. with... Meryl Streep at the top in the lead. This is a really interesting mix that he's put together here. And we'll see. It looks, you know, broader. And uh, hopefully there will be a chance for Streep to show comic chops that we know she has. For sure. And Soderbergh to be in his lighter mode. The trailer, at least, is absolutely cut like an Oceans film. As a matter of fact, I was playing it on my laptop and and Debbie was in the next room. And, and she just said to me... It, it, is there another Oceans film coming out just based on kind of the music and the pacing and the snazziness? So whether that's good or bad, we'll find out. But right now, it has that feel. The Laundromat is out October 18th. So every Soderbergh movie is a heist movie at this point. That makes sense. Maybe. Okay. My number five question of the fall movie season is, what does love feel like to Trey Edward Schultz? The once film spotting Golden Brick nominee for his film Cretia is now making a movie called Waves. This is the plot synopsis. Two young couples navigate through the emotional minefield of growing up and falling in love. We've obviously seen Schultz's take on the family reunion slash holiday movie. That was Cretia, basically a domestic horror film where just taking a turkey out of the oven created so much tension and dread, you needed one of those electric knives to cut through it. And speaking of tension and dread, he followed that up with his family survival apocalypse movie. It comes at night in 2017. Cretia was a film that was all about guilt. This one was all about dealing with grief. And in terms of that dread, I remember when we reviewed It Comes at Night on the show and talked to Schultz about the film, we touch on the fact that Cretia does have some of those big tension releases. And with It Comes at Night, it was just a constant claustrophobic pressure that you really don't get any kind of release on until the very end of the film. And it really does keep you in this uncomfortable state the whole film. So you go back to that description of this film about falling in love, the emotional minefield I'm guessing the minefield will probably be the metaphorical emphasis for Trey Edward Schultz. It's got a really interesting cast, including Clifton Collins Jr., Sterling K. Brown, Lucas Hedges from Manchester by the Sea, stars Renee Elise Goldberry is in the film, who is from the original Broadway cast of Hamilton. Cretia Fairchild does appear, the star of Cretia. At least she's listed as an English teacher, so I don't know how big of a role she has. And Alexis Demi is the first person listed in the cast. I am not familiar with her work. I apparently saw her in Brigsby Bear, but don't recall her. She was also in mid-90s and has done some work on Euphoria and the OA. This is a movie that played Toronto here. I know some reviews were just 
coming out. I've tried to avoid what any of them are saying so far. I'll have my chance to see what Trey Edward Schultz is doing with a love story of sorts on November 1st. That is a great cast. Clifton Collins Jr., a name. I'd lost track of him, but after, you know, he got a lot of acclaim for Capote. That was way back in 2005. And, yeah. ha- you know, has been working. I always but, like um, him on screen. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And Sterling K. Brown, always excellent as well. So that is all very encouraging. All right, my number four question, will Harriet be an Eve's Bayou-level triumph for director Casey Lemons? Personally, I'm still waiting for Lemons to match I guess you could call it the psychological perceptiveness and and the control of mood that she showed with her debut, which was 1997's Eve's Bayou. She made Caveman's Valentine, which was a really bold but not entirely successful follow-up, and then Talk to Me, which was a standard biopic but had really good performances, including Don Cheadle. Talk to Lemons about that movie here on the show. Okay, Black Nativity, she also made kind of a stiff attempt to adapt Langston Hughes to the screen. And those are the only feature-length opportunities that she has had since 97. Now, Harriet, this is a biopic, too. It centers on Harriet Tubman and the Underground Railroad. In the movie's favor, I'll point to the cast here as well. Tubman is played by Cynthia Arrivo, who made a splash as the single mother who joins the gang in Last Year's Widows. And then Leslie Odom Jr. and Janelle Monet are also. Leslie Odom, more Hamilton yep, love there. For sure. What I do like about the trailer, which I watched, is all of the nighttime imagery it teases. It does have that spooky portent that is reminiscent of Eve's Bayou. And I think that's important because one of the great things about Eve's Bayou is the way landscape was so key in, in capturing the psychology of the characters. So a bit different here in the sense that, yes, period piece, but kind of in that prestige territory as well. So we'll see what Harriet looks like when it actually comes out, which is November 1. So I have a question about Harriet. It's one of my honorable mention questions, certainly intrigued by the film because of Casey Lemons and because of that cast. My question, a lot more tongue in cheek, which is, is Harriet the first movie aimed at both members of the NAACP and the NRA? Because you said you watched the trailer. And Josh, I don't know if you noticed. A lot of guns. But beginning and at the end and about five or six times in the middle, the movie goes out of its way. The trailer, anyway, goes out of its way to emphasize Harriet Tubman badass. Packing heat. There are even some shots where it looks like something more out of a film like Widows or any Mm. film where someone is posturing as an action star with a gun, which just confounds me a little bit. It's not what I necessarily expected from... I will give every last drop of blood in my veins until this monster called slavery is dead. Ready? It seems out of character, certainly for the prestige drama it otherwise is presenting itself as. I have no historical context to know if any of that um, it could possibly very well be based in some sort of fact. It could be. We'll have to find all of that out, but you are right. Heavy on the guns. Yeah. Way heavier than I would have expected. For sure. The other part, and I'm being really nitpicky here, but there's a line in the trailer where I believe Leslie Odom Jr. says, welcome to the Underground Railroad, which just seems like one of those script moments that's so... On the nose isn't even the right phrase for it, but it just seems... Sure. It just seems a little awkward. Well, it does beg... It begs the question of what audience are they maybe going for because yeah. something like that is is a little bit and i liked hidden figures but a little bit sort of um the 
expositional level that that film right. was at. And um, maybe – but then again, if they were going that way, why all the guns? So a lot of questions about Harriet, but sure. we'll find out when it comes out. OK. My number four question of the fall movie season is how will Knives Out satisfy and surprise? And I am using my – phrases there, my words, very deliberately because I was thinking a lot about the latest movie from Ryan Johnson, not only because I'm excited to see it, but because I recently listened to a podcast where Ryan Johnson was talking about the creative process with Joseph Gordon-Levitt on Joseph Gordon-Levitt's podcast, which is called Creative Processing. Ryan Johnson was the first guest, and I guess the conceit of Gordon-Levitt's show is that every episode is going to have a guest where they're going to talk about some element of making art and the question comes in from a listener or from a fan. So this one was about imitation and originality, which is a great question, of course, for Ryan Johnson, as he is someone who has always worked within genres. And they talked about this within the first, I think, five minutes of the interview that when Joseph Gordon-Levitt got the script for Brick, it said Brick, a detective movie by Ryan Johnson. And then Of course, he made The Brothers Bloom, and it was right there on the script, a con man movie by Ryan Johnson. And then he made Looper, which he called a sci-fi story by Ryan Johnson. We know what he did next. He did a Star Wars movie, which is its own genre. And then this film, Knives Out, is a whodunit, and it says it. He is unabashed about the fact that that's what this film is. And when they get into that a little bit more and why he not only so comfortable working within genre, but why it appeals to him so much. He said that he likes the way the restrictions actually give him more creative freedom. He feels like he likes the constraints, if you will, the genre, but also immediately for the viewer coming in, they bring into the theater certain expectations that the filmmaker has to fulfill. And at this point, I'm guessing everyone listening is ready to blurt out the next phrase that I blurted out in my car that Joseph Gordon-Levitt blurted out to Ryan Johnson, which is, and subvert them. But Ryan quickly said yes, or subvert them. But he countered that by saying, for him, it really is more about trying to satisfy Hmm. those expectations and not upend them completely. It's how you satisfy, but do it in a different and compelling way. That's where they ultimately landed is it's not about trying to completely change what everybody thinks they know about these genres or these types of films. It's giving them a lot of the delights that they expect, giving them what they want, but giving it to them in a new way. And that really is what he's done, I think, throughout his career. Obviously, look at something like Brick, which is this film noir, this hard-boiled detective story that doesn't necessarily change everything we believe about those types of characters or that setting, but it does come at it in a way we had never seen before. I think that is true of all those films, maybe with one exception, and we won't go down this rabbit hole, but Star Wars, where I think a lot of people would argue he did very deliberately subvert those expectations, and that either is what made the film better or potentially made the film worse. Again, a good conversation we could possibly have another time, but this is what looks like a pretty traditional whodunit all taking place on an estate. There's a dead patriarch. There's a family that hates each other. Any one of them could have done it. And Ryan Johnson is going to unravel that mystery and how he unravels that mystery. I can't wait to see the cast is already fascinating. You've got Anna de Armas, Chris Evans, Daniel Craig, Michael Shannon, 
Jamie Lee Curtis, Tony Collette, Christopher Plummer, Lakeith Stanfield, Don Johnson appears, Frank Oz, M.M. Emmett Walsh. I think the two detectives in this case are Daniel Craig and Lakeith Stanfield. I can't wait to see that pairing on screen grilling all of these characters. So the ensemble just looks incredible. But of course, knowing that you have Ryan Johnson behind it and knowing that he is going to explore the whodunit with such care and genuine affection, but at his own spin, is what really has me interested. Ladies and gentlemen, I would like to request that you all stay until the investigation is completed. What? Can we ask why? Has something changed? No. No, it hasn't changed, or no, we can't ask. I'm gonna live... Have you seen the trailer for this yet? I have, actually. Okay, because yeah. the other way you could describe it, really, the other genre is as farce. It, it struck me that the tone and the speed of, of course, you know, you're judging by how the trailer was cut. Um, but even the, the little scenes, sequences you get there, that it struck me as a very, and all of his films have clearly had humor within them as well. But um, the most blatant yeah. veer towards a comedy direction, which makes me excited about it, too. Yeah, that movie opens right at Thanksgiving, November 27th. All right. My next question, who still has the bigger biceps, Sylvester Stallone or Arnold Schwarzenegger? I know you sat up many late nights in the 80s wondering this. Of course. You can wonder it once more. They're both reprising iconic 80s roles this fall, Schwarzenegger as the Terminator in Terminator Dark Fate and Stallone as John Rambo in Rambo Last Blood. So, yeah, this is maybe one of the lighter questions, but it's kind of a tough call for me, actually, because I would say overall – I like the Terminator franchise better, if you just look at the two franchises. And Dark Fate has Linda Hamilton back, which should definitely help. My name is Sarah Connor. Never seen one like you before. Almost human. I am human. At the same time, I actually do have a lot of respect for the first Rambo film, 1982's First Blood. I remember I'm well when I, you know, I only knew it from seeing bits and pieces of the sequels when I was a kid, and when I went back years ago and actually sat down and watched it, uh, it was this shockingly thoughtful exploration of PTSD for its first half, maybe Absolutely. even a little more, and then things go a little haywire. But yeah, um, but yeah, it's a, it's really, a really good movie. It's a really good film, um, and Stallone has had a history of revisiting iconic characters of his in rewarding ways. 2006's Rocky Balboa, Adam, still still the best Rocky. Uh-huh. It is. Yeah. So maybe, just maybe, there's a chance both of these could be good. Rambo Last Blood opens September 20. Terminator Dark Fate opens November 1. Yeah, Last Blood seems like it's tempting fate, calling it that, doesn't it? Like, <laughs> do we really bit. believe that? That it'll be the last one? Yeah, we'll or, see. Well, well, you know, that'll depend on the box office. Yeah, but. that was actually one of my very distant honorable mentions. I saw somewhere that James Cameron, I say distant because I can't say I'm all that pumped to see the new Terminator film, and I've skipped most of the alleged sequels. But one of my questions was, what is a true Terminator sequel? Because that's what James Cameron has said. He said this is the only true sequel to the films he made. So someone else way more adept at analyzing these films would have to give me that answer. My number three fall movie question is, it's a very long one here, Josh, that I managed to fit in about 17 movie titles. So it's a patented question. DPs Roger Deakins, Rodrigo Prieto, Robbie Ryan, and Hoyta Van Hoytema all have movies coming out this fall. The Goldfinch, The Irishman, Marriage Story, and Ad Astra, respectively. Which shooter 
has the best shot to join these cinematography stars. Inspiration for this one coming from a new IndieWire article I saw a couple days ago that was about the Oscar season coming up, this fall movie season, and they picked out 30 cinematographers to keep an eye on. So a lot of great talent out there, and there were a bunch of very familiar names, people like the ones I mentioned. There were some others I recognized, but maybe not quite on that level of greatness just yet, and a few names I didn't recognize at all and now have on my radar, but there were two names that really stood out to me, and I think they'd stand out to you as well, Josh, who I think have that potential, and maybe with these films, of kind of elevating their status and being in the same conversation as the other DPs I mentioned. The first one is Jody Lee Lipes, who got his start as the cinematographer on Lena Dunham's breakout film, Tiny Furniture. He shot a bunch of episodes of Girls. He then went on to shoot Martha, Marcy, May, Marlene. He shot Manchester by the Sea for Kenneth Lonergan. He also shot a documentary I saw a few years ago called Ballet 422, and he also did Judd Apatow's Trainwreck starring Amy Schumer. His work will be on display this fall in A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood, the new film directed by Marielle Heller about Fred Rogers. Of course, Tom Hanks as Mr. Rogers. That movie opens November 22nd. And then the other option here, Josh, is Rachel Morrison, who shot Ryan Coogler's Fruitvale Station. Also, Rick Famuyi was dope and broke a barrier at the Oscars, becoming the first woman nominated for Best Cinematography because of her work on D. Reese's Mudbound. That's where she really caught our attention, I think. And then she also shot Coogler's Black Panther. We will see her work this fall in the Kristen Stewart vehicle, Seberg, which is about the actress, the famous French actress and star of Breathless, Jean Seberg. That movie doesn't actually have a fall release yet, but it did play Venice. It did play TIFF. It's supposed to come out in the next couple months. And those were the two big names that, as I said, Josh, really stood out to me, who I think have the potential to be revered cinematographers who are already obviously operating at the top of their talent. But I'll link to that IndieWire article in our show notes at filmspotting.net if you want to scan for any other names that appeal to you. Yeah, I'd put my money on Rachel Morrison just because as soon as you say mudbound, immediate images yeah. come to mind. That opening mm-hmm. of them digging the the graves in the rainstorm and some some really arresting imagery in that film. All right, my number two question also comes via a listener, Ross Bratton on Twitter at our Bratton. Will the Joker be added to the list of characters to get two people an Oscar nomination. Huh. So this felt to me like a patented Sam Van Hallgren poll question when I looked at all the options we could have. Choose which of these are your favorites. I'll get to those. But of course, first off, Heath Ledger is who Ross is thinking of being nominated for The Dark Knight and Joaquin Phoenix with Joker having that potential. Phoenix, we know, is capable of anything. And I will say at least that first trailer, I haven't watched the second one yet for Joker, but the first one is all about Phoenix. It's every frame is about um, even the way he moves, the smallest gestures to the grander ones. So I definitely think there is that potential when it comes to an Oscar nomination. Now, Ross's question did make me think of other characters who have earned Oscar noms for multiple actors. And I found a list, a handy list at Mental Floss. Do any come to mind, Adam, before I quickly run through these? Um, Absolutely not, but my brain is Mental Floss at the moment, (laughs) Josh, so hit me. You're going to kill yourself because of this first one, Henry V. 
Laurence Olivier, Kenneth Branagh. And then maybe even throw this into our fall movie preview because Timothy Chalamet is in David Michaud's- You don't say. The King. You don't say, Josh. And, How many choices do we have left in this top (laughs) five? Okay. All right. I'll leave that there. (laughs) But let me run through some other characters here. Richard Nixon, he got nominations for Anthony Hopkins and Frank Langella. Professor Henry Higgins, Leslie Howard, Rex Harrison, Vito Corleone- of Marlon course. Bryant, right? Marlon Brando, Robert De Niro. And then a lot of royals on this list. So Queen Elizabeth. Yeah. This is the same year in 99, Kate Blanchett and Judy Dench. Huh. Henry VIII. This one I would not have known. Charles Lawton and Richard Burton. Here's one we should have probably thought of right away because of its recent last year's Oscar conversation. But Vicki Lester of A Star is Born. Janet Gaynor in the very first film. Yes. That would have been, right? And then Judy Garland. And then just two more here. Rose DeWitt of Titanic. Gloria Stewart played her and Kate Winslet played her in the same movie. In the same movie. So I guess that counts. Yeah. And something similar here, Iris Murdoch. Again, Kate Winslet. And again, the same part in the same movie. Judy Dench. Judy Dench. Huh. There you go. Okay. So just some interesting factoids there. For sure. For you. We'll see if Joaquin Phoenix and Heath Lodger join that list. Joker opens October 4. So you'll notice if you've been following Twitter or social media at all over the weekend that we managed to their talk about Joker without actually getting into any of the conversations surrounding the movie or any of the details whatsoever. I'm already... I avoided all of that. I know. I'm already a little disturbed about where all the conversations are going. And at this point, I'm going to try to forget about Joker yes. until we actually see it. That was my That's plan That's the all best along. reason to not talk about it. We haven't seen it. I'm blissfully naive. My number two movie question started out being pretty generic. And then when I landed on my Knives Out one, I knew I wanted to amend it anyway. It's about Marriage Story, Noah Baumbach's film. And I was going to ask kind of a variation on the Knives Out question, which is what's the new take on this going to be? Marriage stories are as old a genre as we have in cinema, maybe. And I think about great films like Ingmar Bergman's Scenes from a Marriage and multiple films that Noah Baumbach himself has made on the topic And that's when it hit me in light of something I did just see pop up on Twitter the other day that a better question about marriage story is, will it solidify Scarlett Johansson and Adam Driver as generation defining or at least decade defining actors? And you know where this is coming from a little bit. First, just a few weeks ago here on this show, our producer Sam posed a great question, a terribly flawed film spotting poll question trademark, but an intriguing one where he asked, Which of these actresses, and we named about eight to ten of them, do you think really defined the decade of the 2010s? However you choose to define decade defining. Scarlett Johansson did okay. She actually finished fifth, though, from the top with only 9%. Emma Stone finished ahead of her. Jessica Chastain ahead of her. Amy Adams in second. Jennifer Lawrence won it with 29%. But still, there was a lot of love. We got a lot of great comments about Johansson. She did better in it than I thought she would. And she certainly is an actress who I know I was someone who maligned her a little bit early in her career, didn't see her as someone with much range. And now I can name four to five films of hers that I think she is pretty remarkable in. So I think any list, anybody who is questioning which actresses have had the biggest impact over the past 10 years or so, she's going to be in that conversation. And Adam Driver may be maybe wasn't in that conversation until just this weekend. At Telluride, there was a tribute to him. Now, I'm not sure why an actor who can't be more than about 32 is having a tribute at Telluride. I didn't get into the details. But 
it seems as if Martin Scorsese, who directed him on his film Silence, showed up, maybe even as a little bit of a surprise, to pay tribute to him. And he said this, I can't tell you the perseverance and the beauty of the performance and the experience I had with him. He has marvelous screen presence, one of the best, if not the best, actors of his generation. So none other than Martin Scorsese (laughs) is saying he's in the conversation for best actors of his generation. I've avoided the reviews of Marriage Story as well coming out of whatever fests it has been at. But so far, everybody has been raving not only about the film, but about those performers in particular. So if anyone is trying to put them up on a pedestal, we'll see if Marriage Story is the movie that really elevates them. Well, interestingly, if you consider their stature between the two of them, Driver is the one with an Oscar nomination for Black Klansman, and Johansson has not received one yeah. at all, which seems strange to me when you think about how much work and good work, as you said, she has done. So, yeah, maybe they both nab one with this. Now, this is a little bit of a cheat. This is the one that was not deliberate on my part, got a little bit confused. It's coming out October 4th, but that's only at the New York Film Festival, if you happen to be attending that fest. It looks like right now it's not coming out until the week after Thanksgiving, which is December 6th. So cut me a little bit of slack, Josh. It's fine. I allow it. Okay. All right. My number one question kind of took me by surprise, and it was really based on Finally seen the trailer for this. But the question is, will a beautiful day in the neighborhood warm my heart or creep me out? Because Hmm. I've got to say, have you seen this trailer? I don't think I have yet. No. Okay. I'm really curious if anyone else has had this experience. It was very disorienting for me. Like I was watching, it was almost like I was seeing double or watching some sort of pod person. It was so strange, just weird to see an icon like Tom Hanks portraying an icon like Fred Rogers. I'm sure there have been similar instances of, you know, renowned actors taking on other personalities that we know. But for me, I think it's that I know both of them so well, or or at least I feel that I know them as people even, you know, beyond Hank's all his roles, you kind of feel like, and this could all be a lie, we never really know any public personality, but you kind of feel like you know Hank's the guy as yeah. well as Hank's the actor. And you certainly get that from Fred Rogers, whose show I grew up on. So seeing them merge in this way, It was really jarring. It's a beautiful day in this neighborhood, a beautiful day for a neighbor. Would you be mine? Could you be mine? Please, won't you be my neighbor? Hello, neighbor. Now, of course, the film could be a wonderful way to honor Roger's legacy, but right now it kind of feels like something out of being John Malkovich, it was sort of like I'm looking into Tom Hanks' eyes and seeing Fred Rogers there, and I didn't really like it. <laughs> Little left. Okay. Now, most people have already said they've cried at the trailer, so possibly I'm the only one who feels this way. Love to hear if anyone else is having a bit of an odd experience with it. I still want to see the movie. I mean, yeah. think about last year's Won't You Be My Neighbor, reminding me of what a treasure Rogers was. Maybe the last public personality we can safely wholly admire. I don't know. Maybe. I hesitate to even say that. Right. Uh, Mariel Heller, as we've mentioned earlier on this episode, directing is absolutely a plus after her accomplished The Diary of a Teenage Girl and Can You Ever Forgive Me? So a beautiful day in the neighborhood. That does open November 22. I just hope it doesn't give me psychological (laughs) scars. I can totally see that. Does it make any sense? No, it does. And here's why. Because I have not seen the trailer, but I have seen images from the trailer popping up in various places and something about Hanks as Fred Rogers does unnerve me a little bit. It does. So 
You're not totally insane, Josh. And now, now I'm sorry I planted that in your and so many <laughs> listeners' heads Seriously. when they go to see the movie. How are you going to ruin Mr. Rogers for everyone? <laughs> That's what you probably have pulled off. Congratulations. I hope not. I hope okay. Not. You spoiled my thunder a little bit here, Josh, with my number one. And listeners, longtime listeners will know that there is some variation of this question that tends to pop up in these fall movie previews. I like to go this hyperbolic route. The question is, will The King be my favorite movie of all time or merely my favorite movie of 2019? So, yes, I happen to be particularly enamored, really longtime listeners know, with Henry V, with Henry IV, parts one and two. I'm a Shakespeare fan generally. I'm a fan of those plays. I'm a fan of his history plays primarily, which I think makes me a little weird. Most people tend to go for the tragedies or the comedies and not the King plays. My daughter Sophie thinks I'm incredibly boring, but it's the history plays. I like the most. It's a very dad move. You know what? It is, but maybe it's because they combine elements of the tragedy and the comedy. You certainly get hints of that in the story of Henry V and his rise to power that we see in Henry IV. Now, I have not read a whole lot about this film or tried to completely wrap my head around how they have united these stories, what is three different plays ultimately into one film, whether or not they've just kind of run them together like the Godfather saga or if something else is going on. But maybe the best way for me to articulate why I'm so interested in this film beyond my Henry V love is to ask more questions. One of them is, can David Michaud return to form? Because I really loved what I think was his debut film, the first film I saw from him anyway, Animal Kingdom, as you know, less high on the rover than many, including you. And on my we top were both. List, yeah. Yeah, I thought we he were was both, in fine form. We were both pretty mixed to negative on War Machine, That's the movie true. that came out on Netflix. So I really want to see if this is more Animal Kingdom, David Michaud, which kind of makes sense because it's all about these family dynamics, of course. My other question is, as much as I love Timothy Chalamet, and he is a selling point, I'd be interested in this film almost regardless of who's playing Henry V, but when I first heard that he was playing that role, that seemed like such a perfect fit. Coming off of seeing him in Lady Bird and Call Me By Your Name, couldn't wait to see his take on it. But now I wonder, how badly will Robert Pattinson's Prince Dauphin outshine Mm -hmm. Chalamet in this film? Because I love Robert Pattinson as well, and he gets to be his rival, or at least one of his rivals, here in this story. And lastly, Josh, I don't have an eloquent way to put it, Joel Edgerton is Falstaff? I like Joel Edgerton as an actor, but Falstaff, it, huh? Falstaff is one of those characters who I was trying to think of the proper adjectives to describe him. And I realized that not only was maybe I just too limited in that way, it's hard to describe him because the name Falstaff alone throughout the history of drama now, throughout really the history of popular culture, carries so much weight. It embodies so many sort of nuances and contradictions. You describe other people as being Falstaffian. Sure. You don't describe Falstaff. Falstaff just is. He is this rabble-rousing, wise drunkard who is a mentor, at least early on, to the young Henry. And maybe it is simply another limitation on my part that I am imagining some of the characters like Brian Blessed, who played him in Branagh's version, and I see these very big, round characters of portraying Falstaff, yeah. and it's hard for me to see Edgerton as that type of character. And I don't know if he went down that path or not and gained 150 pounds, which is what I think he'd have to do to play Falstaff, or at least 50 to 60. I don't know if that's 
what he's trying to pull off here or not, or if he's giving us a completely new take on Falstaff. Either way, I'm curious. A new chapter of my life has begun. Already I can feel the weight of this crown I wear. I've been forced to rely upon the counsel of men whose loyalty I question every waking moment. I need men around me I can trust. I'm here because you are my friend. King has no friends. King has only followers and foe. But I will come with you. Well, Edgerton has, I don't know, I don't mean this in a negative way, but sort of a blunt edge to him. And yeah, Falstaff is, I, there's like a, at one, there's a, a stupor and a dexterity at yes. the same time. Yes. And I don't see that with what I've seen in Edgerton's other performances, but that doesn't mean he's possibly not capable no. of it. Or yeah, or he goes a different way. We'll we see. will see. We'll find out on October 11th. That's when it hits select theaters and then it will hit streaming on Netflix in November. Just a couple other quick names from the cast. Ben Mendelsohn, who I saw for the first time in Michaud's Animal Kingdom, mm-hmm. appears in this film as well. And Thomasin McKenzie, who we both loved in Leave No Trace, Deborah Granick's film from last year. She also stars in The King. We'll find out if it's just my favorite movie of the year, Josh, or the greatest movie ever made. Those are our top five questions of the fall movie season, Josh, before we get to maybe any honorable mentions. Do you want to just quickly list the top five that you're just most excited to see? If you could only see five fall movies, which five would they be? Yeah, based, I think, on watching a few of the trailers since I you know, last thought about some of these titles. But right now, I would actually have Ad Astra up at the top. I just I was up and down with James Gray for many years, mm-hmm. but The Lost City of Z really won me over to him. It made me very excited about whatever he was going to do next. And of course, I'm a Brad Pitt fan and a sucker for space movies, so that's my number one. Number two, I have Parasite from Bong Joon-ho. And number three, Ryan Johnson's Knives Out. And then rounding off this list, The Irishman, which we didn't mention yet, I don't think, but is coming out November 1 and in the fifth slot is Jojo Rabbit. I'm just so curious, yeah. even more so after seeing the trailer for that. I, it didn't really help me wrap my mind around it anymore, but did still make me excited. So we have a lot of overlap there, just a different order. I've got the Irishman at number one. Scorsese, De Niro, Ficino, Pesci, I'm in. Noah Baumbach's Marriage Story is my number two. Actually, Knives Out, Ryan Johnson's three. The King, which was... Part of my number one movie question is my number four pick. And then I also have Parasite from Bong Joon-ho in the fifth slot. Were there any questions that you weren't able to get to? I'm all out of questions. You're all out of questions. Okay. I got a bunch mostly that apply. Not a bunch. I got four or five that mostly apply, as I said earlier, to movies I'm not that excited to see. Starting with, will Ang Lee explore something poetic in Gemini Man? Or is he just playing with a new visual effects toy? Because... He has a history of doing that, sometimes Mm -hmm. to great effect. I've seen the Gemini Man trailer now probably 17 times, just by accident. Poor you. Yeah, it it plays before every movie I go see. And it looks awful. And I don't think the trailer even mentions that Ang Lee is attached to it. Someone mentioned this to me the other day. It might have been you. Otherwise, I had no idea. He's a director who I have a lot of appreciation for. I don't know that I have enough appreciation to get me to go see Gemini Man, though. It's not a strong trailer. I'll say that for it. Will Edward Norton finally solve the case of his missing acting Oscar 
for Motherless Brooklyn. I think he's actually pulling triple duty here as writer, director for sure, and the lead of this movie playing a detective with Tourette syndrome. And there's something about that that just on its face makes me nervous. Yes. But I also really do trust Norton. Just in terms of kind of his artistic integrity, I suppose, and his skills as an actor. So I'm hoping. Might be a little much. I'm hoping it's okay. Go back to Stephen King and it chapter two, which Stephen King character will be the most frightening fun to revisit? Will it be Pennywise from it chapter two or Dan Torrance? Don't call him Danny from Dr. Sleep. No. We're going back to The Shining. All Stephen King's kids are grown up this fall. I've got one I'm stealing from our production assistant, Andy, which is Will the Mountain remind us that Jeff Goldblum is more than a meme. I did click on this only because Andy listed it as one we should look at. And how about this cast? Denis Levant in the film, Udo Kier, Jeff Goldblum, of course, Ty Sheridan, I think, is the main character in this film that comes to us from writer and director Rick Alverson. He did the comedy a few years ago and also The Entertainer, which actually I didn't catch up with. So it looks like a very odd movie, like I would expect from Alverson, just based on the comedy. And it's true. Goldblum's become kind of this curious social media figure almost. And I've always appreciated him as an actor, but it's been a long time since I've really thought of him as an actor. Well, and once you start doing commercials, playing yourself, I think you shift into that territory where people think of you that way. So it would be refreshing to see him kind of back in actor mode. Yeah. This one, I couldn't come up with a question for, but I saw the trailer for the movie Frankie the other day. And it looks intriguing, of course, because it's got Isabel Huppert in it and Brendan Gleeson, two amazing actors. But I watched the whole trailer and had no sense really what the movie was about, had no desire to see it despite those two stars. And then I find out in doing my research for this list that it's directed by Iris Sachs, who I think is an incredibly talented filmmaker behind Keep the Lights On and Little Men and before that, Love is Strange. So just because of his attachment for getting the cast, I do want to see Frankie. And finally, I'm kind of interested in seeing Judy, not so much because of what Renee Zellweger might do with Judy Garland or the Judy Garland songs, but I love Jesse Buckley in Wild Rose from earlier this year, and she appears in that film, plus Hustlers. Josh, can't say I'm super pumped to see Hustlers. Not a bad trailer, though. But not a bad trailer. And along with all those other interesting cast members, Constance Wu, who I thought was so good in Crazy Rich Asians, she is back in Hustlers. So that wraps up our top five fall movie questions. We would love to hear your picks or any other comments about the show. You can email us anytime. Feedback at filmspotting.net. If you want to dig into the show archives, maybe check out that review we did of the original It. You can find it at filmspotting.net. We've got reviews, interviews, and top fives going all the way back to 2005. Also on the website, go ahead and vote in the current Film Spotting poll. We're asking you which acclaimed director's unlikely space movie would you most want to see. To order Film Spotting t-shirts or other Film Spotting merch, visit filmspotting.net slash shop. And to subscribe to the weekly Film Spotting newsletter, you can do that at filmspotting.net slash newsletter. You can also interact with us on Facebook and on Twitter. Adam is at Film Spotting. I'm at Larson on Film. Out in limited release, including here in Chicago this weekend, is Boonwell in the Labyrinth of Turtles. It's an animated film about the making of Land Without Bread, Boonwell's scathing 1933 satire of the era's naive ethnographic documentaries. It's a documentary I remember watching in a doc film class back in in college, I'm very interested in seeing this animated film, one that just might be 
a Golden Brick nominee. We will have to catch up with that film, Boonwell and the Labyrinth of Turtles. Out in wide release is It Chapter 2. Josh, are we recommending it? Uh, no. No. I'm, I can't say I'm anywhere close to no. recommending it. I am not, unfortunately, either. Next week on the show, we're going to get to Eyes Wide Shut, Stanley Kubrick. We're going to reckon with that film from 1999, one of our nine from 99 reviews. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Hogren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistant is Andy Mitchell. Thanks also to Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. Our music this week is from Bleached. It comes from the album Don't You Think You've Had Enough. More information at HelloBleached.com. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Could we mm-hmm. just alternate paragraphs on somebody else's It Chapter 2 review and make people think we saw it? And then we wouldn't have to go to it your or most, stay here late. Your most diabolical question but it's, prop, proposition it's, yet. It's genius. It's, it's evil genius. Film Spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad-free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting Archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.